Welcome to the Red Door Church Sermon Podcast. Red Door Church is a church seeking to transform the city of Pretoria by the power of the gospel. We are distinctly mission-minded, community-cultivating, and city-loving. Please enjoy this week's sermon, and don't forget to follow and continue the conversation by sharing with those around you. To every area of our life, and so this is going to be pretty exciting and pretty fun uh, preaching through this, and we'll give a little bit of a context in the moment. Um, and this morning, specifically, we're preaching on what Paul calls partnering in the gospel. What does it mean to be partners in ministry? And so before we get going, I know we've prayed a lot, and it's been good, but let me pray just for our hearts as we're about to receive the word of God. Father God, we pray now as well that our hearts would be quieted down. We thank you for the space and this time that we can hear and receive the gospel. And we pray that even as we hear the word, that our hearts wouldn't be hardened, but that through your spirit you would soften our hearts, that we would have ears that that hear and eyes that see the truth and the beauty of the gospel. We pray that you would do this now and every day and this week, not just in our church, but in all the churches meeting this morning, ultimately for your glory. Amen. It's always interesting in different movies that we watch... um, and I'm sorry, this is a slightly more masculine uh, example, but in all the sport movies and things that you watch, there's always a, a, a conflict or climax that builds up and the team is behind and they, uh, half the team is injured and the coach goes into the dressing room and he gives this magnificent speech and the whole team is riled up and they go and they win the match. And there's something that it resonates with us is it just with guys that it resonate, or does it resonate with the ladies as well? Maybe not as much. No, um, uh, some ladies it also obviously does with. But we see it in special in real life as well. There's something about sport that captivates us because it's unscripted. And so because it's unscripted, we're not always sure what the, what the ending is going to be. And so we need that motivation to actually get us through the game or get the players through the game. And so coaches play this enormous role. And we see this in various circumstances. Uh, very real example of this, and again, apologies, this is again a rugby example, but was in the previous World Cup, where even before the game, our head coach, Rassi Erasmus, was talking with Siakolisi and his men, and kind of just explaining to them, rather than feeling the pressure of the game, what a privilege it is to compete, and to compete on behalf of your nation. And they went on to win the Rugby World Cup. And it's this phenomenal achievement. And so similarly this morning, we see another coach in Paul writing to this church that have started well out. It's this new church plant in Philippi that started a good game, and they're almost at half time now. And the interesting thing is, Paul is not going to make it to the end. Paul is in prison. He's looking at his own execution. And what he's doing right now with his letter to the Philippians is giving his final speech, his final halftime talk. What is going to be the things that I leave you with? This is the words that should get them through the game. This is the words that should get them to the end. And so if you want to hear something that people are passionate about, listen to a dying man preach. So Paul isn't dying of a sickness or anything, but he knows that evidently he will be executed in the near future. And he writes this letter. And so as Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians, as we said, he's sitting in prison, awaiting his execution probably as he's writing this letter. 
And it's interesting because as we'll see throughout the next couple of weeks, one of the major themes of this letter is the one of joy and contentment. And so it's amazing to see Paul in the circumstances that he is writing to the church about what it is and what it means to serve God and the amount of joy that accompanies that. The amount of contentment that goes along with serving God. Now Paul's circumstance should be very important to us because most of us, our joy and our happiness is determined by external circumstances. When people are friendly with me at work or when my job's going well or when I'm healthy or when things are going my way, then I'm happy and then I'm joyful. It's frustrating, but in a sense, we have very little control about how I feel about my circumstances. We're always reactionary. When it's going bad or when I've got an accident, then it steals my joy. And yet Paul, in the most dire of circumstances, says that for the Christian, your joy and your happiness isn't determined by your external circumstances, but rather by your internal identity. And this is what he's writing to the church in Philippi about. How to live lives that actually exemplify this. How to live lives that are connected to the gospel. And so it is clear in this letter that Paul is really affectionate towards this church. If you go and uh, compare Paul's letters to the other churches, he always starts off well with his letter to the church in Colossae and to the Romans and Galatians. But then there's always major issues that he's got to address in the church and saying, guys, you're doing well, but this is a big issue. You've got to chat about this. His letter to the Philippians is the one exception where Paul is just super impressed with these guys. He's super encouraged by what this church is doing. And yet, he doesn't want them to stay there. He's the coach that's telling them we're only halfway there. And the way that you've started, in the manner that we've started this race, I want you guys to finish it as well. And so what do you tell a church that's doing seemingly well, that has all of their ducks in a row and doing what they're supposed to be doing? Well, Paul says, don't focus on what we've done, but on the glory of the gospel. And so the whole letter, the whole series can be summed up in the first chapter in chapter 1 verse 27. It says, and Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are of standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Basically what Paul is saying, this message of Jesus and the cross is simply too glorious, too beautiful that we become complacent in our lives. Yes, you started out well. Yes, you came to Christ and you became a Christian, but make sure that your life is worthy of this calling that you've been called to. Make sure that you are daily plugged into the saving grace of Jesus. It isn't enough that you at one time knew him. It isn't enough that you know about him or know what the faith is about. What Paul is urging this church that's doing everything right is saying, in the way that you started, keep on going. Live lives worthy of this gospel. We cannot stop now. And so he starts this message. Family, this is what we need to hear this, is, this morning as well. 
We started this church a year ago. We started this new church plant and we're all excited about this new community and new relationships and what we're all about. We've talked about our three distinctives and we're so excited about being mission-minded and community cultivating and city loving and this is good things and we've had lunches and brides and uh, we, we've worked and we've gone to Mama Lodi and we've seen amazing things. And now in our second year of plant, we want to ask ourselves, what do we do now? Do we sit back and just put it on cruise control and we'll see where this church goes? Maybe we'll grow, maybe we won't, but we've done a good job. And the message from Paul this morning is both a corporate message, but also a very urgent individual encouragement and saying, as you've received Christ, stay plugged into the gospel. Church, there's nothing else that we can move on to. I've heard this many before, many a time from different people and churches, unfortunately, that we've seen, that once they've accepted the gospel in the beginning, but now I want some deeper theological truth that's going to sustain me. I want something more. I've heard about the gospel and that's great. But what else is there that Christianity can give me? What higher gifting or calling is there that we can move on to? How can this be better or how can I grow in my knowledge of other things? And that's all good and well. But the message this morning is that the gospel is this deep well that we'll never reach the bottom of. And so it's, it's amazing how the message of the gospel is so simple that a child can understand it and yet the application of the gospel We'll take our entire lives to actually understand how it plays out in every way of our life. I love how it was shared in the beginning through the communion, how at different stages of our lives, different aspects and characteristics of God is revealed. Things that we think we need at that stage is the same as within a marriage relationship. You actually think that you love your wife when you get married and then you realize you actually don't know that person. And it's a great thing. Because the more you get to know the other person and even the more that you get to know their faults, the greater opportunity you have to love them. And so if you think you love this person today, you'll love them more in five years. And if you think you love them in five years, you'll love them more in 20 years, in 30 years, and in 40 years. And it's the same with the gospel union that we've been called to. So this morning, especially in this morning's text, Paul opens up this letter full of thankfulness and full of vigor and he writes and there's three things that he wants to start this letter off. He says he wants to affirm the church in Philippi and their faith. He wants to assure them of their salvation and then he wants to give them a final encouragement. This is like his beginning salvo, his opening speech of the letter. So only three things and we won't be too long this morning that I want us to see this morning. Paul affirming the church in Philippi of their faith, assuring them of their salvation, and encouraging them to run this race well. So let's start with the affirmation. Paul writes this letter, and he sends it from everyone serving with him, and from Timothy, and from all the brothers, and he's sending it to everyone in the church. It's very important to see. He says yes to the overseers, and to the deacons, and to all the saints in Philippi. Everyone should hear and listen to this letter. Everyone's got a stake in what's happening in the church. And he tells them how fond he is of them. And how he remembers them with thankfulness every time that he prays for this church. And this is why Paul is so fond of them. Verse 5, if you have your Bible, read with me. He says, I am fond of you and I'm thankful towards God. Why? 
because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This church didn't just become recipients of the gospel. They actually became partners with Paul in the gospel. And this is such a good understanding of the gospel that Paul has right here. Paul recognizes that he somehow hasn't graduated from the message of the gospel. They are mutual benefactors of the gospel. Mutual recipients of this message of grace. And so what Paul does is as he invites this and as he thanks this church, he says, you guys are with me in this battle. You're with me in the same ministry, the same things that I'm busy with, even though I'm an apostle, even though I'm a cross-cultural missionary journeying to different countries and doing spreading the gospel and planting different churches. You guys in your local context, as you're holding on to the gospel, you're partakers of the same ministry. There's no distinction. I wonder sometimes we create these different categories in our minds and different levels of Christians and therefore different responsibilities. You've got the Christians that just live their normal lives and they're plugged into a local church, but then you somehow have the super Christians. They go to other places and difficult places and they go and start ministry there. And don't get me wrong, I don't want to belittle the work that Christians do in difficult places, but the affirmation that Paul wants to give and the confirmation that he wants to give to the local church is the importance of their local ministry. In the sense, the thing that Paul is enjoying and that they are enjoying, they're spreading the same message and they're in the same war. They're just in different battlefronts. Some are in the Air Force, some are in the military, and some go behind enemy lines like Paul and start new churches. But they are all partaking of the same ministry and holding to the same ministry. And here's why. Here's why Paul can confidently affirm them that they are also part of this ministry. He says, for you are all partakers with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So here was what Paul is saying. Paul is sitting in prison at this moment. And later in the, in the letter we'll see that Paul says he thanks them for the way that they're praying for them. So they're partnering for, with them in prayer, but also in the way that they've been supporting Paul financially. Man, and th this should open up different avenues for us in the way that we partake in ministry and mission work all over the world. What Paul is saying is in the fact that they partner with him in prayer and financially is then in the things that Paul is doing and in the way that the message of the gospel has been known throughout the imperial God, they've got a stake in that. They're actually the ones that are part of that ministry because they've been supporting him through prayer and through finances. That's why at church and in many different ministries, when we say for people or when we tell people that this is the way that you can contribute to the church and the ministry, we never ask for money. A church never asks for money. What a church does, it gives people the opportunity to become part of the ministry that people are on different fronts. And so we partake of this ministry in different ways. One, in the way that we experience and tell the gospel ourselves. Two, in the way that we pray for other people. But three, definitely in the way that we financially support people to do ministry in a specific way. And this had a cultural connotation to it as well. Remember, this is a culture of honor and shame, meaning that the people that you associate with, you almost get their clout. Is that the word? Is it clout? I can't remember. I'm not, I'm not really PC right now. But... Um, 
you almost get their uh, a social status. And so if they associated themselves with Paul, who was in prison, which was a very shameful thing at that stage, in a sense they're being associated with shame. And so they're taking the social risk of not just putting Paul in their newsletter to pray with per month, but they're publicly stating that this guy that doesn't have a good reputation out there right now, we're partnering with him. And so Paul says, I know that you guys are plugged into the gospel because you're not ashamed of the gospel and the people that are carrying the gospel forth. And so family, what that means for us here today in the same sense that we need to create or develop the sense of we are connected to the gospel, we need to be unashamedly connected to the gospel and not just when it's beneficial for us. There will be times professionally, personally, in family relationships when this won't be the popular option. And it's becoming more so like that in South Africa. It wasn't in the past. In the past, culturally, everyone was Christian in South Africa. Now it's becoming the less modern view. If you hold on to Christian views, you either outdated or bigoted or someone that's actually not inclusive of all people. We know that's not true, but that's the view of Christianity. And what we need to do as a church is also not to be ashamed of the gospel and the people connected to the gospel. Also, Paul says that you were part of the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Meaning, well, this is interesting. I was wondering this week, what, what does it mean for the church in Philippi to be part of the defense of the gospel? I'm sure there's some of us that would want it to mean that we need to get into arguments with people about why Christianity is, in fact, the only true faith. And that's not what this passage means. Later we'll see how Paul urges people to grow actually in love and humility. So what it can't mean is people who simply believe that they're right and look down on the people around them. The defense of the gospel rather is exemplifying in the way that we live our lives. Do we allow this truth of the gospel to dictate how we live our lives, who we associate with, how we spend our time and our money and our resources and our efforts. Yes, there will come times where we need to publicly defend the gospel, privately engage with conversations, but Christian, are you allowing your life to be worthy of this calling? To exemplify the truth that God has been calling us to. And what Paul is saying to this church in Philippi, you are absolutely doing that. You're not just doing it in prayers, but you're putting your money where your mouth is. And for that, we know that not only have you heard the gospel, but you are plugged in and you are truly saved and you are affirmed. And Red Door, I think we can have that affirmation as well. What we have going can't just be superficial. There has to be something supernatural happening in our midst for this thing to work. On a natural level, this church shouldn't work. And yet we see God moving. And so two things. One, we shouldn't give one another the praise for whatever we're doing or our good strategy or the good meals that we provide. But rather, we should turn to God and praise Him for the grace that He's already shown in our midst. And we should allow that grace to affirm that God is moving, that the gospel is real, and that he's changing our hearts. Praise be to God. 
in light of this, Paul then moves on and he affirmed them in the gospel and now he wants to assure them of their salvation or maybe reassure them of the race that they're going to run. And he reassures them in the following. He says in verse 6, read with me. It's not on the screen, but if you do have your Bible there with you, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Family, that's an amazing sentence to hear. I don't know about you, but often I gloss over something like that. That one single verse is infinitely deep with theology. I don't know where you've been in your life and especially in your Christian walk if there's been moments of depths of despair wondering how long you would be able to hold on to this truth. Wondering if, yes, you accepted Christ but will we be able to keep on going? Will I make it until the end? The reason why this happens is we're often confronted by our own brokenness or the brokenness of the people around us or about the brokenness of the world. We're disappointed. We're disillusioned. We're despondent. We go into deep bouts of depression as our sin and our addictions doesn't want to let us go. And we wonder, will I be able to hold on to this truth until Jesus comes again? I'm able to do this now. But how do I know that I've got enough petrol in the tank to get to the end? See, that's the problem with running. This isn't even my notes. But you know what's great about driving is you know exactly how far you can still go, how much petrol there is in the tank. The problem with running is you've got to do something that we call pace ourselves. Because I don't know if I go flat out now, will I be able to still get home? <laughs> you don't want to run 10Ks and don't have the energy to get back home. And so you hold back. And I think instinctively that's what a lot of us does with the church and with Christian life. It's like, man, I know this is maybe good, but I don't want to go all out. What if I don't have enough in the tank to fulfill or run this race until the end? How do I know if I'm going to make it? And family, this is the good news of the gospel this morning. This is the glorious, great, gracious, good truth is that God will sustain you. If it was down to my holiness and to my self-discipline, there's no way that I would be able to run this race until the end. I know myself better than anyone else. I know how many times I've had New Year's resolutions. Who still is keeping their New Year's resolution in February? I know how many times I've tried to change and constantly I'm failing. And so family, if that was true of our Christian life and if your faith was solely dependent on how well you believe, then we were people without a hope. And we would give in. But what Paul is saying is because he believes that they are true believers, that they have accepted the true gospel, that they didn't even accept it, that God was the one who prepared their hearts and the Holy Spirit is the one who illuminated their eyes so that they could see the gospel. And because it was God's work, not only did he get them into salvation, not only is he sustaining and sanctifying right now, but he will also keep them until the end. God knows exactly what's going to happen in your future. He knows the trauma. He knows the sin. He knows the hardships. And yet, he is willing, which is important, and able to sustain us through those things. And what should that do? Well, 
knowing that God is sovereign actually doesn't make us complacent. Ah, I know God's got this, I'm not going to do anything. It's quite the contrary. It makes us urgent. Family, you see, precisely because there is a sovereign God, I can make an effort to stay plugged into the gospel. If I knew from the beginning there was no hope, no matter what I do, I'm probably not going to make it, that would lead to complacency. Why try if I can't even make this? But if there is a guarantee that God will keep me until the end, then I can make an effort. Then I can actually be productive with my time and my energy because I know even in my broken efforts, God will use this. I don't know where you are this morning, what your journey has been with Christianity, with faith, or with the church. Maybe you're feeling like at that low point where you want to give up, where you can't go another step. Know this, that the Spirit is alongside you, urging you, keeping you, wanting you to finish the race. Stay plugged into the gospel. That is Paul's assurance that it gives them. Their salvation is not rooted in how well they can actually obey the law. Their assurance of salvation is not rooted on how well they can continue to believe. Our salvation is rooted in the goodness of God. I think someone said it in the beginning when we were sharing over communion. God is kind. He's such a kind God. Just in the way that he's orchestrating life, he's kind towards us. And in his kindness, he's leading us to himself, to repentance. Lastly, Paul affirms them, he assures them, and then he encourages them to keep running and fighting the good faith. Read with me verse 9 to 11. Paul says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Again, it's interesting to note that Paul isn't merely praying for the church that they would increase in knowledge and discernment so that they can know what the right thing is, that they can approve the right things and then do the right things. No, did you notice what he said? He says, may your love abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. I think Paul is speaking on two fronts here. I think he's speaking to the church as a whole. We see that the words that he's using here is plural. So he's talking to the church corporately what should happen, but he's also talking to the individuals in the church what should happen. And the first and obvious one is on a personal individual level. Paul wants each one and each Christian to grow in maturity. And maturity, according to this definition, is first and foremost to grow in your love for one another and for the world and for God. I want us to hear that again. That's not how we measure maturity. When we think that someone in the church circles or in the corporate world is ready to lead, what are the first things that we look out for? Well, how, what, what does he know? What is her skills? That is maturity. That is leadership. And Paul drags it back and he says, no, it's about character. About the love that we grow in. His first and foremost desire for the church is that they should grow in love for one another. That is maturity. 
the love connected with knowledge and discernment. And so what that means for us is to what extent are we not able to only understand the gospel, but also to apply the gospel in every area of our life. And that requires wisdom. And this needs to happen from a place where we love the Lord and love the people around us. If it doesn't, if it's merely a theological exercise, that's unfortunately when we become puffed up and conceited with knowledge and look down on people and what they should be doing. What Paul is rather after is something that we quoted in the beginning that we said gospel fluency. A guy coined this named Jeff van der Stelt and he uses this often to refer to the principle of how to apply the gospel in every area of our life, both in the difficult and in the good situations. How are we able to know the good truths of God and in every area of our life to continually believe that? And those are the things that we said in the beginning. The fact that God is great, meaning that he is sovereign, that he is in control, that he is glorious, that he is able to do all things, that he is gracious, lovingly giving forgiveness to those that are in Jesus Christ, and that he is good, an important one. That not only is he able to do these things, but through his love, he wants to do these things. In every area of our life, when we encounter a crisis or sin, it's because in some way, shape, or form, we actually don't believe these four truths. Let's think about it. Let's think about someone that overcommits at work or makes work the thing that his life revolves around. Now, I don't know. It might be many different things why a person does that. One of it might be the... People really want money. They actually don't want money. What people are after is control. It's what money gives them. I don't want to be dependent on my parents or on other people helping me out. If my car's broken, I just want to buy a new one. I want control. And so we run after the things that we think can give us that control. And what gospel fluency is, is in that moment and throughout our life, actually believing the truth that through the cross and what Jesus has done, that, Jesus, that God is actually in control. I don't have to seek control for myself. And how to allow that truth to penetrate every area of my life. Whether it's seeking affirmation from relationships, seeing the graciousness of God in Jesus on the cross, and how he has affirmed us and loved us. Many of us, we <laughs> looking after experiences or things that just make us happy or enjoyable things. We want to live YOLO and FOMO and I don't know what's all the other... <laughs> I'm not even saying... That. I'm so glad the students aren't right here right now. I would have lost all my street cred. But um, it's trying to live your best life now because you don't believe that God is truly good. Yes, he's in control. He has everything and he's given me grace and he's given me forgiveness, but that's where the almighty God stops. I've got to look out for myself now and try to find things that I find pleasure in. And so I look for goodness somewhere else rather than seeking it in the heart of God. Rather than seeking contentment in God, I go to other places to find this. 
And so what Paul is fundamentally telling the church is, as you've received this gospel, now grow in your love of it every more and allow that to penetrate every area of your life so that you may approve what is good and right and holy. I don't know if you saw what the end game of that is, so that the fruit of righteousness will be produced when Christ returns. And what we've got to convince one another, that's actually where the good life lies. Not in my experiences or my Instagram life, not in my successes or my affirmation or my relationships, but ultimately in that final relationship of Christ and fruit of righteousness. Lastly, there's a communal application here. There should be a love for one another in the church. We should grow in that love and that love together with knowledge and discernment to approve of one another. Another way of putting it, we should judge one another. Now, don't you love that? (laughs) Don't you love the segue where people that don't know the Bible always quote the Bible, you shouldn't judge me? (laughs) Whereas where that is quoted from, it actually speaks about Christians judging non-Christians. But the Bible is crystal clear about the fact that Christians should be judging one another. I hope that sits a little bit controversial with you right now. Again, this should happen within the culture of love and growing for one another. When it happens in that culture, if I see my brother or sister on a way that's leading out of paradise and actually into the desert, into a road that will lead to the destruction of themselves and their relationships, it would be the ultimate act of not loving them by keeping quiet. Christian love and Christian community is actually speaking up. It's actually looking at our lives and comparing it and showing it to one another so that we can speak into one another's lives, pointing one another back to Christ. It's not the game of shame saying who's doing the worst. Rather, it's this great love that we have for the gospel knowing that the best thing for my brother and sister is to stay connected to that. So how can I not judge you in love if we say that we're family with one another? The thing that we desperately need of one another is to judge one another. Again, it sounds super negative, but within context, it means to help point one another back to Christ. As we grow to a community, the transparency that we have with one another grows as well. We're at the end, but um, it'll be interesting to see what your experience was of this community. Man, we're all doing so well. This is such a good community, and it's because we've just been at the surface level. You know, we've just at the icing of the cake. The deeper we're going to go into one another's lives, the more we're going to realize how broken we really are. But family, in Christian maturity, this is a good thing. Discovering one another's brokenness allows us to see once again our great need of the gospel. If you believe that your problem of sin is a meter wide, you think that the solution is simply to jump across the gap. But if you discover my brokenness and your brokenness is actually as wide as this room, you're like, okay, I need a bigger solution. But the more that we grow in our love for the gospel and one another and we discover that our brokenness is the Grand Canyon and there's no way that we would be able to get across this. Our only solution, the only thing that can ever save us is the good news of Jesus Christ. 
then we start to become a community that's maturing. Recognizing how desperately we need him every day. How desperate am I to hear the good news from my brother and sister pulling me back as I want to go astray. Paul is saying this is a life worthy of the gospel. Family, may that be true of us individually. May that continually be true of us as a community that we grow in this, that we affirm one another, that we reassure one another, but then that we encourage one another to grow in our love of the gospel and of one another. Amen. Yes, Lord, what a special morning this is as we gather around your word, as we could enjoy communion, once again being reminded by the ultimate sacrifice that was paid by Jesus on the cross. And as we look to that, Father, we realize instinctively how we compartmentalize that this is true for us and this is true in our church circles, but the moment that I get stuck in traffic, and I'm frustrated, I'm struggling to apply the truth of the gospel. And so I pray that we would be people that move into even the mundane things and pray in those moments and help one another how to sit with it, but how to believe the gospel in those moments. So many people are doing extraordinary things in their vocations. So Father, we pray that you would bless them. But we pray that you would help them see how the truth of the gospel is not separate from their vocational and professional ministry, but that it's actually part of it. Father, help us to be a community to see how we can love one another all the more, so deeply trusting one another that we can become more and more transparent with our own failings, knowing that the judging from my brother and sister is actually love from God the Father. Father, we realize that we fear being judged because we think that we still bear the judgment of God. And so we pray this morning that the reality of the gospel, the grace of Jesus, that means that we are free from judgment would be transparent in our community. That it would take away the fear. Take away everything that we're trying to hold up appearances in front of one another that it would, would disarm us. And yet we know this is a process. We know that we resist change. We resist giving in. And even here the good news of the gospel is real, where we see that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. For that we want to sit back, we want to love you, we want to praise you as the faithful, good God that you are. Amen.